Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would close our ears to any air that I may speak and open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking about how good people are at prophecy. I was reading a few great prophecies from human beings. I thought I would share them with you. Inventions have long since reached their limit, and I see no hope for further development, said a Roman engineer, Julius Sextus Frontinus, in A.D. 100. The abdomen, the chest, and the brain will forever be shut from the intrusion of the wise and humane surgeon, said John Eric Erickson, surgeon to Queen Victoria in 1873. Law will be simplified. Lawyers will have diminished and their fees will have been vastly curtailed, said journalist Junius Henry Brown in 1893. It doesn't matter what he does. He will never amount to anything, said by Albert Einstein's teacher in 1895. It would appear we have reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with computer technology, said by computer scientist John von Neumann in 1949. The Japanese don't make anything the people in the U.S. would want said by Secretary of State John Foster Dulles in 1954. Nuclear-powered vacuum cleaners will probably be a reality within 10 years, said by Alex Lute, president of Lute Vacuum Cleaner Company in 1955. Before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered within hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. We stand on the threshold of rocket mail, said by Arthur Summerfield, U.S. Postmaster General, in 1959. By the turn of the century, we will live in a paperless society, said by Roger Smith, chairman of General Motors, in 1986. I predict the Internet will go spectacularly supernova and in 1996 catastrophically collapse said by Bob Metcalf, InfoWorld, in 1995. Fortunately, Joseph was a lot better at predictions than this, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. So Joseph had risen to power. He is second in all of Egypt, right? Joseph is number two. Who's number one in Egypt? Do you remember? Pharaoh is number one in Egypt. Pharaoh is number one in Egypt. So, Victoria, what does that make Pharaoh? Pharaoh is what? He's what? Is he a king? What does he look like? What does he wear? Do you know? Do you remember? Sophia, what does Pharaoh wear? He's wear, he wears kind of a fancy headdress, right? And he wears lots of makeup. He has like really cool eye makeup, right? And he does a dance, so they walks in to work every day doing this, right? Just like an Egyptian. We have a song that sings about that, tell your parents to go home, right? And they do fancy dances all over. We see this all over the uh, tombs and everything like that. So Pharaoh is seen as a god, and 
Joseph is number two, but he's number two at 30 years of age. And what we've seen is that everything Joseph has done, he has risen to the top. But he's an unlikely person. All the way through, it's been unlikely for Joseph to reach the top, and yet he has. Now, Joseph, even though he's done all of this, he's also the son of one of the major patriarchs, Jacob. But unlike all of Joseph's other brothers, Joseph has one special gift. What special gift does Joseph have that none of his other brothers have? Do you know? What can Joseph do that none of his other brothers can do? Anybody? Prophecy. None of the other brothers has it. Joseph can prophesy, right? And that's what God has gifted him with. And in these chapters, it's this gift of prophecy that will come to pass in a big way. The first comes to pass here, Genesis 41, 53 to 55. We read it. At the end of the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt, <clears throat> it came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And in all the land of Egypt was famished. And the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh had said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you to do. So Joseph had gathered all of the grain for seven years, and he had stored it based on a prophecy that he had had, or that Pharaoh had had, and then Joseph had interpreted those dreams. And he said, look, this is coming to pass. Pharaoh had believed him, and for seven years it did not come to pass, and yet Joseph had gathered this grain. Pharaoh trusted him. He had done it, and now it comes to pass. Now the famine hits, and everybody comes to Joseph, and he says, do what Joseph instructs. And here is where we first see that all of Joseph's hardship makes sense. We didn't understand it at the beginning, all this path that Joseph went through, but here we first see it. Now, the average reader in our day might say, this is crazy. The Egyptians deserve to starve, right? Why would Joseph save them? After all, what happened? The Egyptians enslaved Joseph, and they enslaved all kinds of other people, and the Egyptians did not follow Yahweh. So why in the world would God be saving the Egyptians, right? I mean, that's what I would say. Wouldn't you say that? Why would we want to save people who were enslaving other people and certainly who enslaved us? So what's the answer here? Well, we're going to see some of the answers shortly, but I'd like us to see the bigger picture as well. Earlier in Genesis, the Lord gives Joseph's great-grandfather a promise. Who is Joseph's great-grandfather? Anybody know? Abraham. Huh? Abraham. That's right. Abraham. So we go there. We look in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation, the Lord says to him, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in this story of Joseph, notice that at each part, Joseph blesses, I mean, God blesses those whom Joseph is with. Joseph blesses Potiphar. And then Potiphar casts out Joseph. 
And then he goes to the jailer. And Joseph blesses the jail, right? <clears throat> I mean, God blesses the jail that Joseph is in. Everything that Joseph puts his hand to is blessed. And so by extension, the jailer is blessed. And now all of the Israel, uh, excuse me, all of Egypt is blessed because of what Joseph has done. And Joseph is risen to number two. They're going to be saved from this famine. And by extension, Pharaoh then is blessed. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy. And of course, a fulfillment of this prophecy has a much greater impact than just the people of Joseph's day. Listen to Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Know then that it's those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is an extension. You see, when God is reaching out, He's not simply just saving the Egyptians. He's saving those who will come after them. This is why we as followers of Jesus and all people really need to understand. Excuse me. (laughs) This is why we as followers of Jesus and all people really, but especially as followers of Jesus, that we must avoid the pompous, self-righteous judgmentalism of our society today on who has worth and who doesn't. Our current culture, we follow the banner of wokeism, right? And, and we like to judge people based on um, their skin color or certain groups that they belong to, and we value one group over the other. And all of this is justifying hatred in a different manner than a previous generation justified hatred. It's a slightly different way to get to the same result. But God saves the people of Egypt in part because there are thousands upon thousands of generations yet to be born, if you think about it. Thousands upon thousands of people yet to be born. And in those future generations that will come, some of those future generations are going to save Israel. Some of those future generations are going to provide protection for Jesus when He flees persecution. Some of those future generations are going to come to Jesus Christ. And their children's children's children are going to come to Christ. Many people are going to make an impact for Jesus, and they are going to live with us for eternity. So when the famine, when the people are saved, those people and their children and children and children's and children's and children's and children's and grandchildren, all on forth and so forth, are going to make an impact in this world. No one can predict what will come, and our hatred and judgment of what is right before us blinds us to all that comes after us. We cannot undo the sins of previous generations. They weren't our sins. We can only ask forgiveness for what we've done. We can only undo our sins. And we don't punish children for the sins of their parents. Our hatred and judgment of what is right before us blinds us to what comes after us so much. And we as believers can't give in to that. Joseph doesn't give in to that. He can't be blinded by what's been done to him. 
He has to love because God loves these people, and that's exactly what he does. God has called him on this journey, and he realizes that. He realizes that all that has happened has been prophesied, and he is in the middle of of a prophecy coming to fulfillment. He's in the middle of what is happening, and he now has risen to power. The journey has been tough, but the journey was a path set before him by God. Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream is used by the Lord to bring him into power. And now the tie comes in from the opening chapters of his story. In Genesis 42, 6-9, now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. So what's kind of interesting in these chapters, Joseph knows the entire time who his brothers are. They, they come before him, he recognizes them. Now, why don't they recognize him? He's dressed up in fancy. Right? What's he wearing? Headdress, makeup, right? They're kind of the first goth kind of folks, right? But a little bit different, right? They wear blue. They wear all kinds of makeup. He would wear uh, all kinds of gold, all kinds of stuff. But also, I mean, think about it. If you threw your brother into a pit and left him for dead and then sold him into slavery, would you really think when you came to Egypt and stood before the number two man in the land that this is your brother, right? I mean, it's not the thing that you would actually expect. And so Joseph, as the number two man in the land, begins to have fun with his brothers. Now, we're not sure why he has fun with his brothers. And some people, when they're reading this passage, are like, man, Joseph's lying. Joseph should just tell him. Joseph is kind of, and we kind of have this like self-righteous indignation. Now, should we? I don't really think so. I mean, the brothers did actually throw him in a pit and left him to starve to death. And then one brother said, you know what? We could make money off this dude. Why don't we just sell him into slavery? And then they sent him. So everything that Joseph did, all of the imprisonment, all of the torture, all of the stuff that he went through was because of these guys. They didn't come chasing after him. So everything that happens to them from this point on, you really can't blame Joseph. (laughs) But the question is, why doesn't Joseph tell them who he is right away? Well, I think this. I think the story needs to be read in this light. He doesn't know if they're still wicked. And one of the first questions he asks is, how's dad and how's my little brother? What do you think he's worried about? They might have done the same thing to my little brother. 
if they didn't like me because of mama, they're probably not going to like little brother because of mama. And if I expose who I am, they're going to lie to me. So, I need to find out if my little brother is still alive. And so this whole scheme of Joseph's is to try to get little brother here and to find out who my brothers really are. And it needs to be read in this light. Joseph is trying to get little brother to his home to provide for him and protect him. Also, dad, to find out, hey, did they lie to my dad? And does my dad know where I am? Which probably doesn't. So he wants to get dad here, and he wants to find out and protect little brother. And he wants to find out if his brothers have indeed changed. And that's what this whole thing is, going, is about. And so what he takes is Simeon. Now, this is pretty interesting. He takes Simeon and puts him in jail. Now, is Joseph nice to him in jail, or does he just throw him in the slammer? We don't know. Either way, Simeon deserves it. Now, what's kind of weird here is they throw Simeon in the slammer, and the brothers go back. And they talk to Dad. And Dad's like, eh, y'all just stay here for two years. Don't go back and get Simeon for two years. Now, Mom and Dad, in this room, If you had a son who was left in jail for two years and you could go back and get him, how many of you just say, "Ah, forget him? It kind of shows us something. When was the last time we heard about Simeon? Do you remember? What? What did he do? Do you remember? killed all those people in the town. He did. He killed a lot of people. And he left them odious. He left a stench. He was a murderer. He killed a lot of people. One bad thing happened to his sister, yes, but he killed a whole bunch of people in revenge. Do you think that maybe dad at this point thinks maybe the Lord is punishing him and he's in jail and he should be? I'm not sure. But, so, sometimes our kids, when they grow up, do things we're not real proud of, and how do we deal with that? So, I was at a funeral a little while ago. My, my kids um, knew, one of my kids was friends with someone growing up, and um, you know, the funeral was for him. And he kind of stayed a partier on into his 20s, you know, way past when you should still be a partier, like there's a point when okay, I'm a partier, and then there's a point when it's just kind of sad that you're a partier, and he was at the point where it was just kind of sad he's still a partier. And so he was out on a boat, and he was on what's called the gunwale of the boat, which is, you know, the, the, the railings. We have a Coast Guardy person, right? So the railings. And so you were busting people for that. You're not supposed to be riding on that part, right? Joy would just be arresting people, slamming them on the deck, putting on the right? And, and then the jag over here would just be like, you're going to jail for years, right? And so uh, that's what would be happening. Um, and so they were riding on the gunwale of the boat, this friend. And so if you're riding on the gunwale of the boat, the captain should say, get off, and should stop the boat. And the captain of the boat, his friend, did not stop him. And so um, the boat hit a wave, and boom, 
everyone flew off, and the boat ran over his friend and killed him. And so it was a very sad thing, and so we're at the funeral, and the mom of the captain had to stand up, and I, I was just shocked that the mom was giving um, a talk at the funeral, and at the talk for the friend, I mean, she talked about her son and how disappointed she was. It's one of those moments where you have to talk about your kids who did something they aren't proud of, and sometimes these things happen in life when they're older, and you're like, what the heck happened? Just a moment of stupidity, one moment, and it changes their lives forever, but you as a parent now have to deal with it. So, Simeon and Levi, in a moment of stupidity, went and murdered a whole town of men, right? Now, what happened to their sister was awful, and that guy probably should have been punished, right? He should have been punished, but not all the men. And then they kidnapped these wives and little ones. How does dad deal with that? And we find later on, we're going to find when when Jacob lays hands on the sons, that he basically lays a curse on, on Simeon and Levi. He's not happy with them. So maybe this is why he just let Simeon rot in jail. We're not sure. It doesn't really talk about it, but the brothers are really upset, though, that their father won't let them return and pick up their brother. But notice the two parts then. Reuben and Judah offer a solution. Reuben offers his own children, and then, then, then dad's like, no. And then later, he says, look, you can kill my own children if I don't bring them back. Later on, Judah says, look, basically, we, we can kind of interpret it to say, let it be on my head, so basically, I've given up my life. And a lot of people argue who's doing the best, and they say, no, Reuben is really just not a great guy because he offers up his children, And other people say Judah's the better guy because he offers up his own life. Now, I think it really depends on how much you value your children, how you read this. I kind of think Reuben is the bigger guy here. But either way, both of them are saying basically the same thing. They're offering up one. Reuben failed doing one. I think probably Judah's just doing the opposite. He's saying, look, if dad wouldn't take his children, how about if I offer up my own life? I think they're both desperate men. They're both saying, look, Dad, please, let us go back. Please, 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 let us go get Simeon. We'll go back, Dad. And I think they're both good. I think Judah has changed, though, from what we saw. Judah was not a great guy. He's repented and he's changed. You're seeing the change of these men. Reuben was good. He messed up and then he got better. And remember, these guys were pagans and they're coming to faith. Judah was bad, and now he's changing, and he's going back. You're seeing the transformation of these men. But the climax of the chapter comes right here. Genesis 43, 29 to 31. When they get back, Joseph lifted up his eyes, and finally he sees his brother. Joseph is now 30 two years old. You think about this. He was thrown in a pit. His brothers were trying to murder him, left to starve to death, then sold into slavery, then put into prison, and then now he's number two in Egypt, sends this family back 
and the family doesn't return? Where is his little brother? And then finally, at 32 years of age, after two years, little brother stands before him. And he lifted up his eyes, Genesis 43, 29, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? He's not even sure. Last time he saw him, he was a little bitty one. Right? Maybe Leah's age. Maybe your age. Of whom you spoke to me. God, be gracious to you, my son. He's ecstatic. There's an exclamation point here. Then he hurries out. He can't even finish the sentence. He says it. He can't even hug him or talk to him. He can't let them know who he is. Moms, you see your baby boy after this long. Dads, you see your son after this long. Brothers, you finally see your family after you've been a slave. You can't contain it. He must run into the other room and he weeps. This isn't tears, a couple of them. There are so many he has to change his makeup, it says. He bawls his eyes out. He sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and he weeps. And he washes his face, and he comes out and controlling himself, he says, serve the food, and he eats with them. The only one who didn't betray him stands before him. Well, besides Reuben, but he didn't know that Reuben didn't betray him. He's overwhelmed. It shows the absolute control that Joseph has to keep his composure during this charade. It's not easy for him, but he wants dad now to be with him. He wants to find out what kind of men his brothers are, and he has, he has to come to understand that all of this now, he has come to understand it at this point. All of this has come to pass because the Lord God Almighty has brought it to pass. He is now standing in the midst of a prophecy fulfilled. What must that be like? Can you imagine to see it all being fulfilled before your eyes? The sheaves bowing. It's happening right this moment. Now, dad and mom haven't come. The rest of it hasn't happened. Do you think he's nervous that the rest is going to happen? Do you think he's a little scared? Would you be? At this point, do you trust the Lord to fulfill it, or are you just a little bit nervous? How much do you have a part to play in this? Will God bring it to pass? Have there been things in your life that God has called you to do and you haven't done, or God has called you to do and you have done and you're still in the midst of it? Do you trust that the Lord will bring it to pass? Have you seen the Lord call you to do things and the Lord has brought it to pass? How have you handled that? Are you at the beginning of the journey, the middle of the journey, 
or the end of the journey? Have you been part of a thing that you didn't understand at the time, only to see much later how God has brought it to pass? It's an incredible thing to be in the midst of a fulfilled prophecy. And it's an awesome thing to be at the end of it and to look back and to see how God did it. It reminds us who is really in control all of the time. Amen.